last 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, mercy! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson Newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast, a special Thanksgiving week edition of the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano joined, as always, by Brendan Mortensen. Brendan, how you doing? I'm great. I, I, I like this little early in the week podcast with yeah. Thanksgiving coming up. It's, it's nice. Get you through the, uh, the, the weekend, long weekend, if you're yeah. uh, driving somewhere, driving home or something flip on the podcast to listen to because we got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about Renato Nunez being designated for assignment and he was designated in order to make room for six additions to the 40-man roster. We're going to break down those six additions and what they mean going forward. We're going to talk to former broadcaster of one of those additions, Isaac Matson, uh, and uh, discuss what he brings to the Orioles 40-man roster. But uh, first, Brendan, obviously, you and I are both NBA guys. I don't know how many listeners mm-hmm. are, but it, this has been, as always, a crazy NBA offseason, in particular because it's condensed to a week. But every year, the NBA offseason is ridiculous because you have the free agency starts, and then within a 48-hour window, everybody gets signed, pretty much. All the big names go off the board. Would baseball be better off? if free agency were more like free agency in the NBA? I think there's a case to be made for both sides, but I'm going to say yes, because there's just so much buzz and excitement around NBA free agency over the last few days that Major League Baseball could use some of that buzz and electricity a little bit with their free agent signings. I know this free agency period for Major League Baseball is not as exciting in part because there aren't as many big name free agents, but there still are guys like Trevor Bauer out there who is a Cy Young winner who is going to be signing with a new team most likely. And you really haven't really heard much about what he's doing, about where he could potentially be going. If this was NBA free agency or NBA Twitter, we would know what flights he was on. We would know what he had for breakfast that morning and what it meant in terms of what team he was going to. So I think Major League Baseball could generate a little more excitement for their free agency. I think it would be more exciting if they did it in a shorter period. I think the case to be made on the other side is that what would we talk about for most of the offseason? Yeah. And when would we have it? If we had it maybe during the winter meetings at that point, then there would be so much dead period after that happens where we wouldn't have much to talk about until spring training. And up until then, it might be exciting to talk about. But the drips and drabs of information, I think, can be exciting um, over the course of the offseason, but I think we have just become accustomed to getting stuff immediately, ha- stuff happening quickly. It's a problem with society today. But the, you know, it, <laughs> kids today. Yeah. But it, it, I don't know. I think that something has to be done probably at some point to shake up the offseason because I think the flaws got really exposed two offseasons ago with the Manny Machado, Bryce Harper offseason and their free agency because we just did not get any information and we didn't get either of those guys signed until the new year and then Bryce not even signing until into spring training and those are huge guys that everybody in the league should want right yet there they were just kind of sitting there for months and months 
Well, NBA free agency is different, too, because there's so many trades of just huge names. Yeah. I mean, the NBA over the last few years, like I don't think there's more than five guys in the NBA that you know will not get traded. Right. And I think there's probably five guys on each major league team at this point that you know for a fact are not going to get traded. Well, and So that definitely adds to the excitement as yeah, well. Yeah, and they know the names. I mean, fans know the names more than... Uh, the average household, you know, we everybody knows who LeBron is. Most people know who Kawhi Leonard is, but, you right. know, and MLB just has a name problem. That's probably what it comes. We've back opened to. up a whole new can of worms about Major League Baseball marketing. Uh, Rob Manfred, if you're listening, <laughs> have uh, some ideas there. Uh, all right, let's talk about Renato Nunez uh, because Brendan, you and I on this podcast and previous podcasts have talked about why he does not make sense on the 2021 Orioles roster. So this is not us changing our tune and trying to make sense of a deal that we were against. We have always brought up <laughs> going back to during the regular season. Yeah. Why we think that he probably wasn't going to make it through this offseason on the, the Orioles roster. And it starts with the fact that he does not play a premium position. The only position he can truly play at this point is first base. You have Chris Davis, who is going to be on the roster in 2021. You have Trey Mancini coming back. You have, Yuzniel Diaz is a potential DH maybe going forward. You have Ryan Mountcastle as a first base slash, slash DH slash outfielder. There are too many guys in these corner spots for Renato Nunez to be able to make it through the offseason. And on surface level, it's not like Renato Nunez is a particularly bad player. You know, he had 31 home runs in 2019. This is a guy who can contribute offensively he had 12 homers in the shortened 2020 season with that 256 average and 31 home runs and eight OPS of 816 he can contribute offensively but when you're looking at the Orioles roster right now there's a lot of guys who can contribute offensively and they give you more value elsewhere as well so you can't really justify continuing to put Renato Nunez in the lineup because you probably wouldn't start him at DH over Ryan Mountcastle or Trey Mancini offensively even and you aren't going to start him at first when you could be getting Ryan Mountcastle some reps at first base and you're not going to start him at DH if you want to get Yusniel Diaz some playing time but the corner outfields are plugged up or somebody else or Jose Iglesias maybe needs some rest and goes to DH instead of playing shortstop that day so it's just hard to justify putting him in the lineup day in and day out. And while he does give you value offensively, and I wouldn't be shocked if they can find a trade partner for him, I also wouldn't be shocked if they can't because he just doesn't provide you really anything defensively. They tried him at first base last season, and he just wasn't really cutting it there. Yeah, he, he can still be traded just because he was designated for assignment does not mean uh, that he can't be traded. And Mike Elias said that trade talks will continue through the next Thanksgiving weekend, this upcoming weekend. So they are going to try to deal him. This designation for assignment just happened when it did because they wanted to make room for the six guys that they had to add to the 40-man roster in order to protect them from the Rural 5 draft. So he can still be traded, and I do think he will have trade value around the league. The, the thing is... We don't know if there's going to be a DH in the NL next Which year. Which is ridiculous. Crazy at this point in the offseason because teams are making dis decisions and deals with guys without knowing whether or not they an entire half of the league will have a position. Absurd. So, you know, Renato Nunez fits into this class of players that may have a much larger 
interest around the league if the DH sticks in the National League next year. I think if there had been a decision on the designated hitter, a solid one for the National League next season, I think Renato Nunez absolutely has a trade partner. Yeah, I, because I think you've got an, a lot of National League teams who probably weren't set up with a DH. Yeah, weren't prepared for it probably right. going into 2020. And, and he would be traded somewhere. Yeah. But the fact that we don't know is, A, like I've said three times, absurd. And B, it gives so much more value to Renato Nunez. Yeah. And considering he is arbitration eligible, so he's projected to make about $1.7 million per uh, MLB trade rumors in arbitration. That's not a lot of money. Um, no. And I get why the Orioles obviously didn't want to pay it because we talked about how the, he's not going to really have a spot next year. And I think that DH spot will probably be a turnstile for the Orioles this year in a good way. Not not like they won't have anybody to fill it. They're just going to try a bunch of guys out there because they want to get all these young guys reps. You know, if they put Mountcastle in left one day and Mancini at first, maybe they want to put Yusniel Diaz at the DH spot because they want to get him in the lineup um, because they have an overcrowded outfield and first base spot at this point. Um, but he will, I think Renato Nunez will have uh, some kind of value at this point, even if uh, the designated hitter does not come to the National League because that $1.7 million, not a whole lot. Teams are not going to want to be spending a whole lot in this offseason. And clearly the Orioles designated, designating him for assignment shows you that they are very willing, obviously, to deal him because he will walk for nothing. So I don't think that the the return, I don't think Michael Elias is asking for a, a, a huge amount in return. Yeah, and it's also tough to deal a guy who's just been DFA'd because how much value can you really yeah, get for somebody? Yeah, there's no leverage. Right. There's no leverage. Right. It basically, the, the only way that you would trade him is if a team is so interested to the point where they don't want to risk him going into free agency where anybody can sign him and they just want to be guaranteed that they are the ones to get Renato Nunez. But the fact that the Orioles DFA'd him doesn't give them any leverage, like you said. I think he will have value somewhere else, because at the very least, I think he'll be a good bench bat. But the only problem is the bench bat that bats that the Orioles have are just younger guys that they would rather get reps. Yes, exactly. And and once he once about a year ago, they gave up on the third base experiment that kind of made it much more difficult for him going forward. And and he fits into the class of players also of Hanser Alberto, um, of Rio Ruiz, of these guys that are trying to make it from the rebuild, the early stages of the rebuild, all the way through. And his odds were just not that good from the beginning because he, he does not play a premium position and because they have so many young guys coming up that could fill the DH spot. Um, but Renato Nunez, I mean... It, it is still impressive. I, I don't think anybody expected him to be a 30-home run guy when the Orioles got him. And remember, they got him uh, way back in 2018, I believe. Um, and he ended up getting a lot of reps as Manny Machado and Jonathan Scope ended up getting traded. Um, and they had so many openings in that 2018 uh, roster that he ended up getting a lot of reps at third and getting his feet wet there. 2019... Uh, is when he breaks out and he shows that he has incredible power. And then 2020, he again showed that power, led the team in home runs, but showed the streakiness that made him difficult to keep and, and is probably going to make it difficult for a team to trade for him because he he could absolutely crush pitches, but he just would go on stretches where he just could not hit the broadside of a barn. 
Right. And a bright spot about this, too, I think, is that the Orioles probably don't make this move unless they see some encouraging signs from Trey Mancini. Yeah. At least what they've seen so far. So I think that's something good to look at here, too, is that the O's probably don't move on from Renato Nunez, who is a good power bat in the middle of the lineup, if they don't think they're getting one back in Trey Mancini. And obviously, we don't know the production that we're going to get out of Mancini, but I think this move indicates that he's at least taking steps in the right direction in the eyes of the Orioles. And of course, he expects to be ready for spring training, and and, uh, all signs point to that at this point, and we certainly hope that that happens. In terms of why they needed these six guys, the day of Friday, I saw some tweets from some people, you know, trying to predict who would be added to the the 40 man and some were only predicting like three players to be added to the 40 man and you and I on this podcast were saying no you need to keep five probably six guys and they ended up keeping the six guys that we had predicted and to me it's it's a no-brainer for all six of these guys so the six again are Yusniel Diaz, Michael Bauman, Zach Lowther, Ryland Bannon, Alexander Wells, and Isaac Matson. The first five guys that I just listed there, Diaz, Bauman, Lowther, Bannon, Wells, are all top 30 prospects. They're all top 25 prospects, according to MLB Pipeline. And the sixth, it was the key piece in the Dylan Bundy trade. So during a rebuild, and we have not, obviously because they just got added to the 40-man, we have not seen any of these guys play at the major league level. But during a rebuild, there is absolutely no reason to even risk letting these guys get away from you. No. I've, I Like you said, I think five of them were 100% going to be kept. There was no way that you get rid of a top 25 prospect in the organization. And even Isaac Matson, the one who is outside of the top 30, you can't get rid of a 25-year-old pitcher who just had a 2.68 ERA in AA in 2019. And, and played a little bit in AAA, too. Right, but, and, and was pretty good in AAA. He had a 3.86 ERA in just five games, yeah. but that's encouraging signs. And, and people... Uh, like Alexander Wells was being discussed as somebody who might not make it. Uh, why would he not make it? You yeah. know, he's a top 25 prospect. Yes, his stuff is not electric, but the guy has been lights out, was absolutely fantastic in 2019 in Bowie, and was part of a one-two punch with Zach Lowther at the top of that rotation. It, you, he might not get picked in the Rule 5 draft, but why would you risk it? He would get picked in the I, Rule and, 5 and draft. And this is not a top 25 in the Orioles system in a, in a shallow system. In a bad system, this is a top 10 system in baseball right now. According to MLB Pipeline, the Orioles have the eighth best system in baseball. So it's a very deep system, and we're going to talk about in a bit why that is and the kind of guys that have helped make it a deep system. So he probably would be a top 15, maybe edge of the top 10 prospect on a much worse system, in a much worse system. So... I, I just, of course, all six of these guys to me were no-brainers. And and I think the Orioles absolutely had to keep all six. You just can't risk losing any one of these guys. Right. Alexander Wells, his floor is probably a swingman. Yeah. So his floor is a valuable piece in either the Orioles' bullpen or back end of the Orioles' rotation. And and th- just positional-wise, a, a starting and... and uh, Michael Elias said in his press conference afterwards that they view him potentially as a, a long-term starter, and he still has that potential. So a starter is more valuable than a kind of fringe DH hitting like 260. And and granted, 30 home run power, but you would rather have the starter in the rotation. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And he's only 23 years old. He is probably the best international signing that the Orioles have had in a while. Yeah. Uh, he's really going to make an impact. I mean, if you count Yusniel Diaz, he's a higher-ranked prospect, but the Orioles didn't sign him in the international period. The Dodgers did. But... Wells, I think he's going to project most likely as a back end of the rotation starter. I think he's maybe the only one of the guys that the Orioles called up who might not make his debut until 2022. He's either going to be a late 2021 or an early 2022, I would think, because he's still only 23 years old and he still has some development to do in the minor leagues, I would think. So maybe he's a little bit further behind. But you just can't afford to lose a guy who has a floor of a back end of the rotation starter. Yeah, absolutely. And, and at, at this point, I mean, Renato Nunez is, what, going to be 27, I believe, yep. at the start of next season. So it just does not make much sense because we, we know the Orioles are most likely not going to be competitive in 2021. So you, you just had to keep all six of these guys. So to me... They were truly no-brainers. Um, and, you know, the first five guys um, with Diaz, obviously top 10 prospect in the Orioles system. Um, a, a candidate I mentioned for DH next year could be a corner outfielder, of course, at the big league level. Um, it's going to be interesting to see when he makes his debut. Um, and that's certainly exciting. Bauman, Michael Bauman, another guy who threw a no-hitter at double-A buoy, terrific at that level. Um and Zach Lowther, another double-A guy. So all these guys are pretty much close to the bigs. Ryland Bannon, a guy that got his feet wet at AAA last year and did pretty admirably there. And he's probably the lowest rated of all these guys. But we know that the Orioles could certainly use some infield depth at this point going forward and just no reason to give up on a, one of the pieces uh, in the Manny Machado deal like Bannon was. Right. And starting with Diaz, yes, he's the eighth-ranked prospect in the Orioles system right now. I think this is probably a guy who has similar hype to Ryan Mountcastle if he doesn't have injury concerns at the minor league level. I mean, this is a guy who has shown a lot of flashes. We remember that minor league all-star game where he hit two home runs and he was the MVP of that all-star game. So if he doesn't have to deal with those hamstring and quad injuries in the minor leagues, I think this is, like I said, probably a guy who has similar hype to Ryan Mountcastle coming up. I think he's probably going to profile best as a corner outfielder. Scouts have said that he could maybe play center, but when you've got guys like Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes in center field, there's really no need to push Yusniel Diaz into the center field role. So I think he's probably either a left fielder or right fielder and could see some time at DH as well. He's got a, He has a lot of raw power, and he's just got to translate it more to his game at the minor league level. We haven't really seen him hit for a ton of power over his minor league seasons, but if he puts everything together, I think this is a guy who could really be a, a maybe a number five, number six hitter in the Orioles lineup for a long time. Potentially, yeah, and, and a, a top 10 prospect in a deep system, and formerly the number one prospect Right. in the Orioles system, and and part of his fall was due to injuries and mistime and, and shaky play at times, but a lot of it was due to the fact that they drafted Adley Rutschman, and D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez have made tremendous strides, and they drafted uh, Heston Kerstad, so he still has a ton of potential and could be you know, a top-three prospect in a worse system. Um, but, Brendan, that middle part, that meaty part in the Orioles system... I just mentioned, rattled off some of the names of the top guys. 
But on MassInSports.com, Steve Molesky also recently spoke to Jonathan Mayo of uh, MLB Pipeline, an, an interview I always look forward to at winter meetings, and unfortunately we won't get that at winter meetings this year. But Steve and Jonathan talked about the middle part of that system and and why the Orioles system has gotten to the part that it has. And a lot of it, I think, is is due to the fact that it, it's not just Adley Rutschman, not just Heston Kerstad, not just Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. It's the fact that they made these trade mostly trades and a few draft picks. You look at uh, Jordan Westberg, uh, seventh-ranked prospect for MLB Pipeline. Um, Terran Vavra, Kevin Smith, those guys that were added it, uh, in trades at the trade deadline. Tyler Nevin. And it, the, this system is a lot deeper. It, it's not just that it has the top-end guys. This system is so much deeper um, than the the systems of years past. And in that article, Jonathan Mayo talks about how in previous years, um, especially during some of their postseason years, the, the playoff years, he had a hard time coming up with 30 guys, finding 30 guys to list. Now it's it's who's going to get bumped off the list and who's not going to make it on the list because they have so much talent there. Right. And a guy like Adley Rutschman, the number two prospect in all of baseball, he's going to bump you up a spot or two. But it's the overall depth of the system that gets you ranked number eight in all of baseball. There's probably 30 of these guys on the top 30 that you think could project at the major league level. And that's not always the case with other teams around the league. Mayo mentions that for some other teams around the league, just like the Orioles were a few years ago, he was struggling to find 30 guys to put in that prospect list. And like you said, the struggle with the Orioles is to figure out which guys should be in the top 30 and which guys you're leaving out. That's how playoff contending teams are built. He mentions the 2011 Royals in there. That's not a team that has a ton of superstars. That's not a team that goes out and signs the Manny Machados and the Bryce Harpers in the offseason. It's a team that was built completely from their farm system. They were the number one ranked farm system in baseball the years leading up to that 2011 World Series win. The guys like Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, those are kind of the big cornerstone pieces that can possibly put you over the edge, but it's the depth at the farm system. Mayo mentions that it seems like every winning team has a guy on their roster like a Taron Vavra. He's the number, what, 13 prospect in the Orioles system right now. He's just going to be a good, solid player at the major league level. And yes, you can have the stars, but you also need those guys like a Taron Vavra and like the six that the Orioles called up. None of these guys crack the top seven in the Orioles' top 30. Yusniel Diaz is the top-ranked one at number eight. But of the guys they called up, they've got number eight, nine, 11, 19, and 25. Those are all going to be contributors at the major league level. They may not be the stars. They may not be Adley Rutschman, but they're going to contribute to a winning baseball team. Yeah, and, and the the gap between like seven and eighteen is not huge. Oh, it's minimal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's you know the gap for probably one and the, the rest of the field in terms of Adley and everybody else is probably larger. But the the depth from really outside the top five from like six all the way down is is pretty minimal like right. you said well and r- when ryan mountcastle loses his prospect eligibility or classification whatever you want to call it he was saying that Gunnar henderson could probably elevate into the top 100 in all of major league baseball of yep. prospects well, so you've got five guys in the top 100 
and a lot of depth after that. Yeah, uh, and, and we um, didn't get to see these guys. You know, right. we might have gotten a better, a great year out of Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall in the minor leagues, and we didn't get to see them uh, play at all. And they they got some time, of course, at the alternate site and down at the full instructional camp down in Sarasota, Florida, but we didn't get to see it. And, you know, other teams didn't get to see it. Scouts didn't get to see it. Talent evaluators didn't get to see it. So maybe Grayson Rodriguez has a terrific season with Frederick or with Bowie and gets elevated into the top 20 in terms of prospects around baseball. So um, there are guys that that might have had great seasons that um, just didn't get that opportunity, unfortunately, this year. But we'll, we'll see what happens. And I, I think it's Look, the Orioles have the eighth-best system, of course, according to MLB Pipeline. Michael Eyes has talked about he wants to get that. He's always looking to elevate that number. I'm wondering if if he's looking to get it into the top five before they get anywhere. You know, like, is he—he's not ready to roll, obviously, with the eighth-best system. He's probably going to make some some moves still to try to get that into the top five over the, the coming year. Yeah, there are still guys on the Orioles roster right now that will probably have value at the trade deadline, and those could be guys that are traded to boost this farm system even more. And when you look at the 2020 draft class, the Orioles had a bunch of high draft picks, and right now they've got their number three prospect in Heston Kerstad and their number seven prospect in Jordan Westberg, who haven't had a chance to show what they really have at the minor league level yet. Yeah. So if we had a full minor league season in 2020, maybe Heston Kerstad bumps up to number two on the Orioles prospect rankings. Maybe Jordan Westberg leapfrogs a Gunnar Henderson or some other guys in the prospect rankings. So we've got a full minor league season, hopefully, to look forward to, to see some of these guys, see how the 2020 draft class starts to pan out a little bit. And I think there's a really good chance that some of those guys could elevate throughout the Orioles system and they could have even more guys within the top 100. They yeah. could have even more guys that are filling out the middle of that farm system. Maybe a guy like a Zach Lowther pops up who wasn't really supposed to be a top prospect out of anywhere, but he's just so consistently good at the minor league level that he's hard to ignore. Yeah. Without having the minor league seasons, we don't get to see those prospects. So maybe going forward, when we get more of those games, some more guys will emerge as well. So the Orioles' 40-man roster is now filled with six guys that are first-time participants on the 40-man roster, additions to the 40-man roster. That roster is sitting at 40 exactly at this point, which means that if the deadline were tomorrow or or have passed to set their roster before the World 5 draft, they would not be able to make a pick in the World 5 draft. Um, We'll see what happens with the Renato Nunez if he gets traded, but... Do you think that the Orioles get it under 40, get it to 39 or 38? I do. I I think they get it to at least 39 because there's some guys on the roster right now that I can't really see carrying over into the 2021 season. Yeah. Even if they even if their mindset wasn't okay, we need to prepare for the rule five draft. I think there's some guys on the roster right now that you just don't really need for the 2021 season. I'm looking at a guy like maybe a Pat Vileka, like a Cole Sulcer. There's just other guys that I think you would rather rotate in. Like if you think Ryland Bannon is going to be a 
good utility guy at the next level, which many have projected him to be. Maybe not an everyday starter, but somebody like a, a better version of a Pat Vileka yeah. who can play every position and is solid defensively and has a solid bat. I think you'd rather get Ryland Bannon reps than you would Pat Vileka. Take an Isaac Matson. Maybe you want to put Isaac Matson in the bullpen at some point during the 2021 season. I think you would rather get Isaac Matson some reps than you would somebody like a Cole Sulcer. Those are two names that jump out to me that I think it would make sense to clear them before the Rule 5 draft starts because, like I had mentioned on the last podcast, you want at least one open spot, I would think, in case a team really surprises you and puts a guy that you really like. Yeah. Sorry, doesn't protect a guy that you really like, so they are eligible for the Rule 5 draft. You want to have the flexibility to go get that guy if you want to. Yeah. And if you have guys on the roster that you don't really think are going to be big contributors in 2021, personally, I don't really see a reason why you wouldn't free up those spots for the Rule 5 draft. And a week from tomorrow, December 2nd, is the deadline for the Orioles to tender contracts to guys. So uh, the non-tender, trade, uh, non-tender deadline, essentially, is a week from tomorrow. The Orioles, I think... With the subtraction of Renato Nunez now, have seven guys who are arbitration eligible. Sean Armstrong, Pedro Severino, who am I missing here? Hanser Alberto, uh, Yolmer Sanchez, Pat Vileka, Trey Mancini, Anthony Santander. I think Trey Mancini, Anthony Santander are... And probably Sean Armstrong, but at least those first two are certainly going to get tendered contracts. Yes. But I think that just about anybody else on that list is a candidate to get non-tendered. Yeah. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of flexibility in what the Orioles roster could look like going into next season. And the addition of these six helps because I think probably all six of them have a chance to debut in 2021 with maybe the only exception being Alexander Wells, who like I said, could be an early 2022 kind of guy, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if he gets called up in 2021. So not only have you added six guys to the 40-man roster, which doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be need to be making their Major League Baseball debuts, but I think you've added six guys that could make an impact at the next level yeah. pretty much right away. Yeah. I mean, especially the thing that I'm excited about is the three guys of Bauman, Lowther, and Wells. Those are three guys that I think could really compete for a spot in the Orioles' rotation this season, maybe. Yeah. So I think that's really exciting, especially to add them to Keegan Aiken, to Dean Kramer, and then, of course, you've got John Means and Alex Cobb in the rotation already. I think these three could put up a real fight to have one of those spots in the Orioles' rotation. It could be... You could have more guys than rotation spots at this point, which is a really good problem to have, considering the Orioles have had the opposite problem for a while. For quite a while. Yeah. Um, Yeah. For a couple decades at this point. So, yeah. Starting pitching. Orioles fans are always asking for starting pitching. This could be the year we start to see some. Yeah. Going to be exciting to see. And, of course, in a week from tomorrow, we will see who ends up getting tendered a contract, who potentially could get non-tendered. And, uh, yeah. We'll see with Renato Nunez what happens uh, if he ends up getting traded as well uh, over the next week or so. Um, but one of the guys on that list that was mentioned of the six guys that was added to the 40-man roster is Isaac Matson. And recently I caught up 
uh, with Steve Goldberg, who is the former broadcaster of the Mobile Bay Bears, the team that had Isaac Matson for the majority of the 2019 season, kind of gave me some insight into who Isaac is as a person and what he brings to the Orioles as a player. Take a listen. Now we're joined on the Masson All Access podcast by Steve Goldberg, who was the broadcaster for the Mobile Bay Bears, a team that has actually moved out of Mobile since, but he was the broadcaster for their farewell season back in 2019, the team that had Isaac Matson for the majority of the 2019 season. So, Steve, thanks so much for hopping on here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for inviting me. So uh, a couple weeks back, I talked to Steve Klauke, who was uh, – had him had Isaac at the very end of his 2019 season, got just five, five appearances uh, in the 2019 season with the Salt Lake bees. But for you, you got to see the bulk of Isaac's season first. What did you know about Isaac before he got to the club? Uh, Coming in really the only thing that I knew was that he was dominant to start the 2019 season in the Inland empire, but he wasn't a guy that you would really find on too many prospect lists he had been in the system for a couple of years and and a guy out of uh, Pennsylvania. So a Northeast guy uh, like myself originally. So, you know, we connected kind of from uh, right from the start about that, but, you know, uh, spent some time pitching in the, uh, uh, the Cape Cod league as well with uh, uh, Chatham, Chatham it was. And um, so, but, you know, outside of that, just a couple of basic, you know, tidbits about him. I didn't really know much about his approach and what kind of a pitcher he was. And, and a lot of times with some of those guys that are, you know, so to say off the radar, when they first come to double a, you don't know that much about, but, and, and sometimes numbers in a ball can be deceiving and, you know, guys are getting by, whether it's, you know, an overpowering fastball at that level that double a hitters can, can easily adjust to and start to hit, you know, it depends on what is, what his off speed pitches are at that point and, and some other things like that. But I mean, right from the start, uh, you know, he definitely impressed me and he impressed other people in our league as well. You know, we would go and travel and, and then play a team. We played five game series for the most part in the Southern <laughs> league. So, you know, teams would, you know, certainly our bullpen guys, they would see them two, maybe even three times yeah. in a given series. And, and I had multiple people come away and, you know, say, hey, this Matson guy really impressed me. You know, he looks like he's going to be a future big league reliever and, and the Orioles definitely got a steal in him. That's interesting, too, with the five game series, because I feel like you could see a reliever two or three times maybe in a series, which might give the hitter the advantage uh, in theory, I guess. But, it, you know, it, for him to still dominate while you're going through these long series <laughs> against one particular team. That is particularly impressive. But he in those 24 games, 24 appearances that you got from Isaac Matson, I mean, the strikeout numbers were phenomenal. Obviously, for a reliever, you're going to see typically higher strikeout numbers, but over 13 Ks per nine for Isaac Matson. How was he able to blow so many hitters away? He just threw a lot of strikes and and. You know, looking at the walk to strikeout ratio, and I mean, he wound up walking, I think, double digit batters uh, last year with us. But but it was, you know, it was down around, I don't know, seven or eight for a given time. Um, You know, you can you can pull up the stats on that and, you know, look into it game by game. But I mean, there was there was one point where it was like, man, you know, this guy's walked seven batters and he struck out. I don't know what it was at the time, 50 or 55. And and he just continuously throw strikes. I mean, any any count. 
Um, you know, he's not, he's not grooving pitches. He's hitting his spots, but you know, he's flirting with the corners and he's not afraid to come inside on guys. And that's not always what you'll see from a first year double a player. You know, that's something that you might expect out of, out of a top 20 prospect, or you might expect, um, you know, out of, out of, uh, you know, somebody who's, who's been in double a and, and been around a few years, but, you know, a younger guy like that and a guy who's coming straight from single A um, up to us, you know, you don't you don't often see that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, certainly with the Angels, uh, we didn't have the chance to see, uh, you know, very many relievers uh, just striking out guys and not walking very many guys. I mean, we were we were always close to the tops in our league and walked batters. And, you know, we would end up walking a bunch of guys and striking out a bunch of guys, too, as you know, now is is the trend in, in baseball these days. But but I mean, Isaac just didn't put very many people on base. And I mean, it was, it was hard to get on against him. It was hard to get hits against him. So I think that really helped his strikeout totals as well. I mean, a mid nineties fastball, he's got decent off speed stuff, which I know he's been working on, um, you know, especially uh, with this year off, which is, I mean, that's probably going to take him up to the next level and really help him out once he reaches the major leagues. But um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was really impressed with his, with his time at double A and, you know, like you said, a lot of strikeouts, but also not very many walks. Yeah. And he was used at times, I guess, in his minor league career as a closer, but, but not exclusively. Do you think that he has that in him maybe, or do you think that he's more of a setup guy, maybe a sixth, seventh inning type of reliever in the, the long term? Yeah. I mean, I think he's, he's definitely a guy who can pitch in any situation. And, and like you said, he's been used all over, uh, with the Angels, we never really had a, a designated closer, so to say. You know, some of the affiliates that that we've played, you know, they would have a guy setting up for the eighth, closing for the ninth pretty much every game. That's, you know, a few systems do it that way, and others just kind of do it by committee. Get your innings in, get your experience. You know, it's minor league baseball. It's not really about the wins and losses. But, you know, you do get up to the major league level, and now all of a sudden you're thinking, all right, how do we slot this guy into our bullpen and like you said, do you see him as a mid innings guy? Do you see him as, as potentially a closer or setup, uh, you know, material? And, and I, I do, you know, I, I can see him, you know, pretty much in any spot, any situation, uh, being able to get guys out. I mean, the question is obviously the mental aspect. Once you get up to the major leagues, how do you, how do you adjust to hopefully next year playing in front of a crowd, you know, packed houses of 20, 25, 30,000 people on a given day. And that affects everybody a little bit differently. I mean, there's certainly more pressure to win and to win immediately than there is in the minors. Uh, some guys deal with that better than others. So, I mean, I think only time will tell, but I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a shot in the back end of the bullpen. Well, you mentioned the the mental aspect, and uh, I've only had the chance to talk to Isaac once, but he seemed like a great guy and a very smart guy. What was the impression you got from him, his personality and and his demeanor? Yeah, I mean, he sure is. He he really understands the game, um, and he really puts a lot of work into it, too. And, you know, you see that sometimes some guys are slacking or some guys aren't really into watching video and aren't into, you know, some of the new age analytics and I mean, there's just so many resources now that I mean, not that not that I'm a player, so I don't I don't understand what it's like to be in that situation. But but I've been around enough of those guys where I don't understand how you could have those tools at your fingertips and not use them. I mean, the guys who put in the work seem to be the guys who get the most out of it. And whether they're successful at the next level or not, only time will tell. But, you know, you need the right attitude from the start and you need the right approach, I think, to be successful in today's game. And Isaac certainly had that. 
Awesome. Well, that's great news for Orioles fans who might potentially see him up at the big league level pitching in Baltimore in 2021. He certainly has that potential, even though, as you said, right off the top, not a top 30 prospect and not a guy that, you know, was immediately named when the the trade, the Dylan Bundy trade happened, but a guy that still had lights out numbers and was dominant at the minor league level. So we expect a whole lot from him as well, and, and fans are excited to see him. But in the meantime, Steve Goldberg, thanks so much for hopping on the Mass and All Access podcast and sharing your insight. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. 